Hello and welcome to Spain and Nerd Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Belmont. Happy Halloween. Tonight we have a special guest co-host who's going to take us behind the scenes of his current projects. And then we're going to do a deep dive into Stranger Things Season 2. Granted, I'm the only one who's seen all of the episodes, so I have all of the spoilers. Just saying. Uh, joining me, as usual, is our Mr. Producer, Will Paul. How are you doing today, Will? I am. Happy Halloween, Sarah. I'm doing well. How are you doing this evening? See? See? It happens to all of us. See? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. 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 Okay. No judgment. Okay. Judgment-free podcast today. Tonight, Will. Why do we keep saying it's today? Because it is today. But it's It's technically today. It's tonight. I don't know. I don't know. You know what? If we go on this route for too long, then we're going to scare away our guest co-host. And we are very pleased to have him here. He's a new friend of the show. Please, everyone, welcome Mr. Bobby Del Rio. How are Hello. you today? Hello. Yeah. What's Hi. Up? I'm here from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It's a crazy mixed bag we have because you're representing Canada. Canada. I cannot talk today, guys. I'm really sorry. I like Canada. Canada is cute. Canada. And I'm like, how do I do that for Alaska then? Alaskia? Alaskia. And you can do North North Carolina. We just go North Kakalaki. Oh. (laughs) I'm not even going to touch that. I think that is the way it works, though. North Kakalaki. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, but we're touching all pretty much all of North America tonight. Oh, yeah. We got the whole continent. Yes. Wow. It's pretty awesome. How many podcasts have you guys done together? Oh, gosh, we're coming up on a, almost a year doing them together. Yeah, you've been us. on yeah. this almost a year. I've been on yeah. it for two years. Just wow. saying, Will. I know. I'm, just, I'm always going to be the new guy. <laughs> this is, this is just, super cool, though, you know, like, especially, like, me making IRL, like, all about social media and then... You know, you guys are ostensibly strangers. You meet over social media, and you have this awesome podcast together. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, especially considering Scene and Nerd was actually started by three guys in California um, back in 2014, who I met over social media, and then they had to abandon the show, and they basically passed it on to Will and I. So now we're here. Why did they have to abandon the show? Relocation program? It's all the Stranger (sighs) Things vibe, you know? It's like it's got that conspiratorial, dark vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here's a question. So if you were in the Witness Relocation program, could you have a podcast? It would have to be from an undisclosed location. Right. Like, how hard (laughs) is it to track, like... (laughs) Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if you were like, yeah, I did it. I don't care. I, got, I have a weekly radio show, and you'll never find me, bitches. You know? <laughs> I feel like you just created a new podcast for somebody to put together, like the Witness Relo program, and then you just have people use voice modulators. That's a good Ooh. concept. Eh? I'm, I should do that. Like, create, like, the Witness Relocation podcast. Oh, yeah. 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 And then have yeah. stories. Have stories. Yeah. And then yeah. certain episodes, it's like, like they catch them, and then like somebody dies, and it's like, oh no. And, <laughs> okay, that went a little dark. That's really dark yeah. yeah, that's pretty dark. But you can you might want to save that for the second season. You know, okay. just build into it. See what I happens. Need, I need a writing room. That's that's the whole thing. By myself, I'm nothing. 
<laughs> what is it? Okay, what is it like in the writing room? A writing room is awesome if you have the right people. So I've been in a number of writing rooms uh, over the course of my career. Um, sometimes a writing room sucks if people don't get along. Um, okay. When people really do get along, it's amazing. It's the best. So for IRL, the writing room was amazing. Uh, and we were all pretty different. Um, but it's just there's just something about a combination of personalities that click together. And there's no way to know until the room is formed. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, because we got along so well, like basically my whole room was hired for two other projects after IRL because it was just our vibe was just unreal. So how did you how did you this writer's room form? It was it this word of mouth, uh, friend of a friend. I mean, basically, what was um, what were the mechanics as far as uh, pulling these diverse people together? Because well, your, your, your room's pretty diverse. I ran the room and I knew you know. So I've been doing like. Um, I don't know, anti-racism work in the Canadian industry for about 15 years. So I'm pretty connected in the multicultural world, and I knew that I wanted a diverse room, um, and my cast is diverse, and that's just who I am, right? Right. So because, because of that, I kind of had already, like, sort of credibility in the world, so I got good referrals and stuff to people, and I had existing relationships. Um, but there's definitely some people that I didn't know that I just kind of, like, asked around and um and people referred people and i don't know i guess i just kind of called in favors and, and and worked my contacts and um our room's pretty impressive man i mean we, we've got people who ended up getting like real jobs on big shows like orphan black mm. after our nice and, um yeah like our room was our room was really pro um and you can see i i mean i hope you can see it in the work it's a it's a pretty complex show Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to sort of pack all that stuff in to a short amount of time because all the episodes are like between five to eight minutes, but there's right. quite a lot of detail in them, right? Yeah, yeah. I um, I noticed that whenever I was I was just talking to Sarah uh, earlier this evening about about some of your shows and uh, how much detail or goes into into each one. And I mean, I, I know the 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 one I think it was episode. Four or five that just I, I I was just in suspense the whole time while um, I think it was the, the stalker yeah yeah episode Before, yeah two ships yeah, yeah. yeah the two ships yes yes that one was uh, it was like creepy and had my hair on the back of my neck as far as like how how that was going that one was going to go um, because it, it was just so well done and I, and I have to say I was like damn it when it ended I was like why I want more I want more Oh, great! But but um, yeah, but it's I, I do like the themes of it. it, it I guess it's, it truly is like an anthology, as far as like you know, you had your cyber, you know, bullying kicking off right at the very first episode, and um, you know, just touching on, on on various themes. And what what how how did you come up with this uh, this series? Uh, so I okay, so I don't know if you know the origin of how I all started, but I, I basically started it with a Facebook post. Uh, so I was like bored one day and I like, I literally posted on Facebook in this group where I knew a lot of people and I was kind of like, Hey, I want to make a project. Like I'll take anyone who says yes. And you know, I figured like five to 10 people would sign up to make a short film. Uh, and then we had 65 people that signed up in 36 hours. Wow. And I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
So I, I, I wanted to do something about social media for a while. Like, I had this idea about how it was a very, very basic thought. It was like, if you could block people in real life the way you block them on Facebook, how would that happen? Because <laughs> you know? there's like certain people who are just, they just annoy the hell out of me. And you, they're like one button away from disappearing from my whole social media world, right? Right. You can't do that in, in real life, right? Because it's like they're there. You can't just like push a button and another gone. They're there, right? So it has I, I just was really fascinated. You know, like how, how does this technology and the real world interact? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that sort of became the starting point for this series. Um, and, you know, there's a, I mean, it's a long process and all these things happen. But by the time we got to the writing room, um, you know, after months of research and improv with this, with our core cast, um, we basically had all of the stories that we thought uh, made sense in the social media world divided into four quadrants. Um, and then I just, yeah, so we spent a lot, I was, it was a little bit heady and conceptual, but I, I really wanted to, to run the gamut of the social media experience as much as possible. So we made sure that three episodes from each quadrant of thought um, sort of persist in the actual season. Yeah. Okay. Is yeah, it so. is it different writing for a web series as opposed to a regular TV TV show on network? Yeah. So I haven't really written for a, like a big TV show. I did. I was in one room. For, for like CBC is a big network up here, so I was in one mm-hmm. room to, to mm-hmm. develop a pilot. Um, okay. But you know, from what I hear, it's ostensibly the same, right? It's just they're just longer, right? I mean, we did the same. I, I've been in the industry a long time, and you know, I have a lot of um, I, I know a lot of the sort of more experienced people, and basically the same, right? It's just you take more time, and you know, you you break story, and you come up with storylines, and you you poke holes, but but also every room functions very differently. Um, so I don't know. As a showrunner, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty instinctual, and I would imagine that most showrunners are. Right. Um, I've worked with different showrunners, and it really is just like the personality of essentially the boss um, is what dictates the, the vibe of the room. Okay. It's funny because showrunners don't actually get that much attention in terms of – like I just feel like the mainstream – populist does not really know they don't really know who show runs what like in the tv industry showrunners is that's like a big that's the big category right like that's the big title it's the most it's probably the hardest job in in the entertainment industry because you you basically every director works for you you essentially hire all the actors all the writers like everything like you you're the boss of you're the architect of the entire series right right okay um which is but a lot of them are unknown i mean (laughs) do you even know who the showrunners are really um, Mark Guggenheim for Arrow, or is it Wendy Miracle? And I then think. Andy Kreisberg for The Flash. Um, Greg Berlanti is in that universe as well. Julie Pleck run, uh, ran The Vampire Diaries. So basically what I'm telling you, Bobby, is if it's a CW show, I know. <laughs> yeah, but holy crap. You really know yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, I if you want. Yeah, well, oh, go I, ahead, yeah. Will. Yeah, you know, for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so I could just like, you know, throw off like Rick Berman and you know, uh, Brandon Braga back at, um, or at least during the Next Generation through Voyager runs, and now, um, 
well, it was going to be Brian Fuller, but he. You guys are just kicking my ass with that question. Oh, my God. (laughs) I I find, I actually, there was a good documentary that came out a few years back about show running. I forget what it, what it's called, but after we finish the recording, I'll look it up and tweet it out um, because I'm fascinated by it because just like you were describing, they're the archetypes and these really are the stars of the programs. And so it's interesting to me how on social media these days with fandom exploding all over the place, how actors get attacked a lot for how the stories are being written and what um, the, all of the shipping that is going on, when in re- reality, it really should be targeted more at the showrunners and the writers because they have more of a control over what's really going on in the plots. Oh, 100%. I remember I did a radio interview, and it was like me and some of the cast, and uh, and then the host kept asking the actors questions that they did not have the answers to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, yeah. they and, and I was like, you know, like... I wasn't trying to be a dick, but it was like at one point the host was like, so to the one of the actors, is there going to be a season two? <laughs> and, and then uh, he's like, oh, well, I'm not sure yet. And then I said, um, maybe I should take this one. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm like his boss, you know what I mean? It's like I'm the one who decides. Right. It's like you're, it's, the actor's probably sitting there. I'm just hoping I have a job in season two. Like I, but like I get it. You know what I mean? It's like actor, you're just trying to like – get some attention and you're just trying to, you know, come off like reasonably intelligent and entertaining. Um, but it's, it, it is amazing, you know, and I work as an actor as well. Right. But it, it's amazing to see the general perception is that actors just have a lot more power and awareness than they do. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, none of the actors are in the writing room. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for IRL, well, one of them, well, one of them I, I was, but, yeah, but it's interesting too when you say none of the writers and writers right in the in the writing room because many times you'll you know hear behind the scenes stories about how ex actor went to you know director or someone and say I want my character is not being written the correct way I, you should change it this way. Well, that does happen. I mean, even even for IRL, I mean, there was um, I'm not going to say what or who or whatever, but there was a different storyline for for um, something very important for our show. And it, it wasn't it wasn't working, and I had an actor come to me and, and express concern, and I, I rewrote I rewrote stuff because um, it had to be done, and the actor was correct. So it's not like it's you know dance monkey dance, you know like I am an actor too, so I'm pretty fluid and open. Um, so those conversations do happen, um, right. but but I do think that the general audience. I mean, you guys obviously, I mean, you you kind of pride yourself, I think, on knowing some of this stuff. Um, you're kind of super fans in a way. A little uh, bit. Because a lot of people aren't, right? And a lot of people don't really know, right? They just kind of want yeah. to watch this stuff. and They do want to see the monkey dance. That's yeah. it. <laughs> Be entertained. <laughs> Entertain me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they don't want to talk to the monkey trainer and be like, oh, it was eight years of you know, giving yeah. monkey peanuts and all. Anyway. No, no, they don't. They don't spend their time watching a movie and then immediately putting it back on to add the commentary and then rewatch the movie with the commentary on. Right. My, but my but also the commentary yeah. is a little flawed because remember, it's people putting their best foot forward. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. And yeah. The reality. The reality is that and you look at this Harvey Weinstein crap, man, and it's like, uh, I mean, I've never been privy to any of this stuff, but. 
but you, you know, you kind of see, I don't know, even like at the levels that I've been involved with, you know, I've done some big projects up here in Canada. I've worked a bit in the U S but not the super Hollywood level, but you, even here you just see like people hire their friends or people who are sleeping together will hire each other or, or it's like a couple, you know what I mean? Like somebody will hire their girlfriend or their boyfriend or mm-hmm. right. It's yeah. just human dynamics, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, in, in many industries, it is, you know, it is relationships. It may not be, you know, not necessarily a dating relationship or anything like that, but I mean, people do hire who they know. Yeah. Like some people, you know, like maybe publicly or something, they would be like, hey, like, why did you hire this actor? It's like, oh, well, I saw her demo reel and I knew she was perfect the character. Meanwhile, the real answer is they've been sleeping together for three months. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you're not going to say that on a podcast. Right. Right. Sometimes. Right. I'm I'm laughing because of this conversation about hiring, and I am an HR consultant for a public institution, and I talk about recruitment all the time. So it's very funny to me because I understand that that's how it works in the private sector, but for the public sector, I'm constantly like, you can't just hire your friends, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> we literally cannot do that. Okay. <laughs> There's this thing called ethics. Okay. Yeah. The entertainment industry is pretty much all friends hiring friends so that's why people are going to these parties and just trying to kiss everybody's ass because everybody wants to be friends with everybody because then you can work all the time right right yeah yeah it's all about who you know and everything yeah. so yeah. so how did you get started in it i slept with someone well see that's the answer <laughs> i was waiting for <laughs> do do you need awesome. to go into witness protection? Do we need to get you a yeah, voice no, modulator you. for this story? Uh, I I was sleeping with this person. <laughs> <laughs> I felt inappropriate, but I really needed the work. Uh, honestly, no. I mean, I, look, I was doing plays when I was a child, right? So I was like six years old, doing plays in school. I wasn't sleeping with anyone at the age of six. Uh, <laughs> to my knowledge, to my knowledge, I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah, you're yeah. not helping yourself out. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were you were sleeping, but not with someone. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was more like orgies were happening. I'm starting to regret the regret the question. It's really, it's really disturbing. Honestly, for me, like um, my career, I don't know if my career is different from people, but I've been really been a self starter. So it's funny because I haven't been in too many of other people's rooms and projects and stuff, but like I have lots of my own projects where I'm the boss. Like, I have another series where I've got a great producer and we're having meetings with the top um, sort of financial institutions in Canada. Mm-hmm. We're getting really close to really large sums of money. I've got a couple screenplays in development with, um, like, some of the biggest Hollywood studios in the world. Um, I My kind of career is, like, self-generated. Like, I don't know, like, even at a young age, like, in my early 20s, I realized man, if I just audition all the time, like, I'm going to get terrible parts that are small and I'm not going to get that much work. Right. Whereas if I make my own show, and at the time I started in theater, I can be the star of my play. And then I started to build this great career as a young playwright. I started to get so much press and and to start to build, in a way, like like sort of a career as a star as opposed to, um, like, a hired hand. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That has sort of continued, um, like even the web world. I mean, if I just audition for other people's things or try to get in their rooms, like 
I'll just get tiny little things given to me. Whereas, I don't know, like as a creator, like I'm becoming one of the most visible people in the Canadian industry. Um, and and I think they think that's largely self-generated. Just putting myself in a position where, okay, well, this is my show, and I'm the star of this show, and I'm the, I'm the creative architect of this show. Yeah. That's kind of how I position myself in the industry. Right. You're the arch- architect of your career. Yeah, very much so. And so yeah. even if it's like I'm acting, it's like I kind of take on, you know, sometimes it'll be sort of a behind the scenes, silent producer role, but I'm, I'm have leverage over my career. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and look, I auditioned for, you know, big projects. Um, you know, I, I think I can say, because I think that season's on the air, but like I auditioned for Star Trek, for example, because um, they shoot that here in Toronto, but I didn't get it and I can't talk about it or whatever, but, um, but like, okay, cool. Like, even if I got it, like it, it wouldn't matter. Like it's like kind of a blink and you'll miss me kind of part. Mm-hmm. Um, but for my own stuff, it's like I'm the star. Right. And then, right. and then you start to, ge- and then even the meetings that you get, you get you get meetings with like the top people who are like looking at you as okay, is this someone that I want to invest a million dollars in? Right. Right. I'm having right. meetings with the top networks in the country, right? I'm having meetings with, with, with studios in Hollywood where it's like, okay, like, is this the guy that we can we can you know, I I worked on a project and they made us an offer for eight hundred thousand dollars just for our salary. And then my team turned it down, which I think is stupid, but they did. Um, <laughs> Why did he throw it down? Whatever. I can't. I mean, look. There's other reasons. That there's certain people have agendas, and one uh, thing I've learned about once you start to play at the highest levels of the film and television industry, there's a lot of money at stake, and a lot of people have very curious motivations. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of try and be a good soldier. I go, okay. I mean, I I, I really wish you would have taken the million dollars, but <laughs> if you think that's a bad idea then I guess I will support that decision. And I don't have any power really anyway. Right? Right. Um, and so this is the thing. Like, you look at the Harvey Weinstein thing, and this is like, this guy's like one of the most powerful people who's ever been in Hollywood of any era ever. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendous amount of power, but but then you see what he did with it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, totally abused it. And, and I guess it not only abused it, but then people both were just so frightened that, and you really brought it up earlier tonight. Um, you know, if you, if you spoke out, then you pretty much are done. Oh yeah, man. I mean, especially like, I mean, look at the people he harassed. You're talking about some of the, the hype, the biggest names in Hollywood for actresses. Mm-hmm. And, and you have some of the biggest names of, of the men covering it, covering it up for years. Right. Right. Or even just too afraid to say anything. Harvey Weinstein is no joke, man. This is a super powerful guy. I mean, um, but I, I don't know. My sense of, I haven't worked that much in Hollywood. But again, like I do have some experience now with some of the things I have in development, and it's just, man, everyone. It's about power and money, and I don't want to say greed, but there's definitely a game. Like as the stakes increase, man, I've already seen backstabbing in a way that I didn't even know existed in the industry, but. When there's millions of dollars on the line, man, people will do a lot for a million dollars. Right. So how, how, yeah. 
So as an artist, how do you reconcile that, knowing that, you know, clearly you have a passion for, for your art and your craft, but then you're trying to deal with the business side and the cutthroat nature of, of the industry? I mean, honestly, I'm just, I'm just not like a super cutthroat guy. Like I, I got in, like I was an, an economic student before I became an artist. Like I left economics at U of T to, to go to theater school. So my motivation is not financial. Like I, you know, like I want to make as much money as I can. I have some good opportunities in front of me, but for me, it's artistry first. Uh, and it, it, for me, it's not worth it to like become a scumbag to make all this money. Um, I mean, there's an episode of IRL, for example, that's about sexual assault, um, which is, you know, a controversial thing. But I wanted to use my platform to tell that story because I have like 10 personal friends who've been like raped or violently sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a real issue. And look, it's disgusting what Weinstein did. But in a way, I'm I'm happy that it came out because. It's not like this is the first, this has been happening for how long, right? Right. Right. In so many industries, and at least it's now getting the attention that the issue deserves. It's a real thing that affects a lot of women. And to be honest, I think men need to realize, like, how shitty their actions are. Where some things that you just think are, are, are sort of innocent are quite flagrant and can really affect women in very significant ways, right? Right. Right. I'm there. Yeah. So look, I'm, I'm just, I would never conduct myself like that just as a human being. Um, so I don't know, like sort of compromising my, my morals and ideals is not very difficult for me to do because that's just who I am. I'm, I'm curious about how you transitioned from actor to producer to writer to showrunner and where out of all of those hats are you most comfortable and where do you truly find that artistry that you were talking about before? Um, okay. That's kind of a long answer, but I will say for me, when I do things, I just, I just do them. So I went and made a feature film a few years ago and I haven't, I hadn't really made shorts. I just was like, I'm going to make a feature film. And everyone was like, you're crazy. You can't do it. And I just did it. Right. So, <laughs> When I wanted to be a showrunner, I was like, I'm just going to be the showrunner. Be like, what? And I just made it, and then we sold it to TV. You know, like this is just how I do things. I just do what I do. Um, I don't, and I don't fear it. Or if there is fear, I just do it anyway because no one's going to give you an opportunity. I feel like you have to, you have to take opportunities. You have to construct opportunities for yourself. Um, and I think when you do that, you can be very successful at whatever you want to do. Right. Um, in terms right. of my talent. Um, I mean, acting is my first love and my first sort of entry point to the industry. Um, I think I'm a pretty good actor. Like, I've had some really good opportunities. But as a writer, I think I was basically a prodigy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I just kind of like, I won playwriting awards at U of T. And, you know, when I was 20, 22 or something, like, there was a prominent newspaper in Toronto that called me the rising star of Toronto Theatre. And then I was, you know, publishing at the age of 24 and winning, like, New York playwriting competitions from Canada in my early 20s. And, like, I'll write a play in 24 hours and it'll be a hit show. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, I mean, my mother was a writer, so maybe I inherited some of that or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Very nice. Um, I, I don't was know. It- yeah. 
So was your was your mom like a novel writer, a journalist, or play and? My mother was a journalist, so she went to like one of the best journalism schools in Canada. But what's interesting, she didn't actually like. She wasn't actually a journalist, but my mother is incredibly literate. Huh. Um, so I think maybe just by osmosis, like I, I, I must have just picked that up from from her. Like I'm just pretty articulate, pretty good at, at constructing like syntax and ideas and concepts. In in a way that is almost unfair, like not to be a dick, but like I don't put much effort into writing, um, and I I seem to travel at the top circles in the world with minimal effort. Like I literally I can write a feature screenplay in 24 hours, and it's just pretty good. And people are like, oh my god, that's really good. I'm like, okay, thanks. Like I have a hundred <laughs> scripts. Written. I don't even actively write. Like I see all these people and they go to coffee shops and they smoke and they write shit, and I'm like, okay, like. Like, I write on my iPhone. <laughs> so how many screenplays have you sold? Any, any projects that we, we would we could go look up? And uh... Uh, I mean, I have a lot of stuff in development. Features are like a long... They're, 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 the feature market is dying. And, mm. um, <laughs> and they're not, you're not being compensated the way you once were. But the number of projects I have in development and the caliber of the people and the teams that I have is I, I'm sure I'm one of the top working people in Canada right now. Um, and the U.S., I have some, like, you know, I have relationships with some of the biggest studios in the world. So, and it's oh. minimal effort, too. So this is the thing. I don't, I don't even really try to do it, but it's just like I send a script around. People are like, oh, my God, this is great. Like, let's make it. I'm like, oh, okay. I want to follow up on a point you just, you just mentioned, that features are, are dying, because that's one of the things we've talked about on this show, especially looking at uh, sort of the lukewarm um, – Hollywood um, uh, returns this year, right. um, and uh, do, do you find that, um, given that feature writing is is dying, that things like what we're going to discuss here shortly, like shows like Stranger Things and basically platforms like Netflix and Amazon, are, are really the, the wave of the, of the future as far as the way the industry is moving? Okay, here here is like. Um Here's a nice little anecdote that will that will summarize my thoughts on the subject and also do a little sort of like surreptitious promotion for me. Um, <laughs> it, it, it'll make us both happy, so I got to do it. Okay. So I have this feature film, The Market, and like it's pretty good. A lot of people have seen it. They really like it. We got it from festivals. We played India. We toured India. We played Italy. Um, you know, we had some screenings here in Toronto, but it's been really hard to sell it. It's been really hard to get distribution. I've sent it to so many people and like, you're like, okay, whatever. And there's always problems. And, and even if you sell it, there's like so little money and all this crap. So I decided I would adapt it to a web series and I got distribution in one day. Hmm. Huh. I decided I would, I would, I was going to turn to a web series and I got digital distribution in three hours. So it's just, I think it just shows where the industry is headed I think it shows the appetite for online content. Nobody wants to watch a movie online unless it's on Netflix. But a web series, people will consume it. Yeah. Things have changed, yep. man. People yeah. don't go to movies anymore. Nope. Nope. <laughs> we Maybe, don't. I mean, look, if it's, it's movie, green screen. Star Wars, <laughs> so Star Wars. I mean, what are we on? Like Star Wars Part 11 or whatever the hell it is? I mean. I love that franchise, but I mean, they're just going to keep pumping out stuff through existing franchise channels to get your money. 
Yeah. But that's all people are watching. They're watching the action movies. Maybe, maybe they'll watch the Oscars for like a month while they promote them all. Yeah. But they're not yeah. watching anything else, right? There is no middle class. All the movies now are like micro-budget films or they're big super Hollywood blockbusters. Yeah. Yeah. All but of them everyone's on Netflix. Netflix is the meeting. I, I heard something like Netflix has more power than all the movie studios in the world combined. Yeah, but isn't yeah. Netflix owned by Disney? No, no. Actually, Disney, remember Disney and Netflix got into a big spat because, um, oh. um, you know, to the point where uh, they're pull, Disney's pulling all their content for their own social media, their own platform. Yeah, all Disney's right. trying to compete against Netflix and they're going to lose. They're right, gonna because, lose. Yeah. because it's not all of their content, though, because like Disney also owns Marvel and the Marvel shows are still going to be on Netflix. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't even yeah. matter. Netflix yeah. has more power. Netflix can do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Netflix has made film festivals completely irrelevant. <laughs> that is so true. Netflix yeah. is a television. You know, like, like even think about like cable. Like, why would you spend a hundred dollars a month when you can get Netflix for seven ninety nine a month and the first month is free? Well, Netflix combined with Hulu and Amazon—that's yeah. what I do. But a lot of people don't do that because it's just too many things. They're like, there's more than enough on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. Or on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you, but you guys are like, you're consuming it and you're kind of like, you know, you got the podcast. For the average person, they just want to watch movies sometimes, watch TV shows. They, they have jobs. And everyone's on Netflix and it's super cheap. And that's why it's disrupted the entire industry. And people don't get that or dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just dead, and I see it at you know this sort of business level where it's like people like just have less money, or there's less episodes, or less or just less everything. Everyone's just trying to do Netflix. So you know, in the web world, which is you know a lower budget world, although money is really starting to pour in there now. I mean, you can even in Canada, you can raise about a million dollars for a web series just through funds that exist here in Canada, right? Mm. So. So is that a mix of like private investors and I mean, is, does the government no, pump in any government. tax credits? Oh, okay. No, yeah, this, is not, this is just the government money that's available. Um, like there is like maybe there's like a there's like a private fund. I think Bell Media has some stuff that they do, but there's just there's a lot of government money here, but they're putting more and more investment into the digital side. And I'm starting to work with some of the top people on that side. And I mean, it's amazing the pools of money that we're going after and that we have a really good chance to get. Um, and this is all, all digital. But at the same time, it's funny because here in Canada, I, you know, I'm going to speak about Canada because that's where I live, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we've slashed the big funds. There was a fund called the Harold Greenberg Fund, which is the dominant fund for screenplay feature development. It's been cut completely. It's gone. Bravo Fact is the dominant fund for short films. That's been cut. It's gone. The dominant fund for music videos even was called much fact, slash cut, gone. But at the same time, the amount of money for digital and web series is increasing a lot. Hmm. But it really shows you like the direction of the industry. Like why are you going to keep putting into money where you're not going to recoup that investment? Whereas the digital sphere, it's just getting more and more and more. It's, it's amazing. Like, 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 look at this podcast. I mean, this doesn't happen if I don't have a web series and I can reach an international audience. 
if I had my movie in a movie theater in North Carolina or in Alaska where you guys are, are you going to have the time to watch it? Probably not. Probably not, yeah. Yeah, whereas here, you know, obviously, right. your web series, yeah, I mean, you can just... And how the hell am I going to get my movie in a theater in North Carolina or in Alaska? Yeah, well, especially when we're... It's interesting you brought up, uh, you know, the, the various film credits and, and government sponsorship, because on our state... You know, we've lost a lot of industry, a lot of projects to Georgia because our legislature cut um, funds to and the, and the various tax credits for the traditional, uh, you know, big budget films. I mean, you know, everybody, you know, I think the pinnacle for us was when we had Iron Man three filmed here. Bills, uh, everybody just loved that. But shortly after oh, yeah. that, um, you know, it, they the parties changed and. Scale back the program and all the work went to, went to, went to Georgia. But, uh, but, you know, you make a very good point. You know, there is more web based and digital platforms and that seems to be where the industry is going. So hopefully. Oh, 100%. It's yeah. increasing a lot, man. Netflix is the hardest meeting in town to get. I heard that you can't even get a meeting at Netflix. They call you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> don't even contact them. That's yeah. what I heard over and over again. Like, they will call you. They will call you. Yeah. Jeez. Like, all right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Netflix um, and and web and you know s- s- stories that are are more compact and generally I know buzz. where you're going. I know yeah. where you're going with this segue. Yeah, segue to Stranger Things two dropped this weekend. Um, so, Sarah, um, give us your thoughts. It was an adventure for me making it through the whole series like I was telling you about before because I watched the second episode before the first episode and the second episode is better than the first episode in my opinion. Um, I've only watched the first episode of the second season but I can't wait. I can't wait. See and so I have to well you say that. (laughs) I'll hate you when I watch it. But right now it's okay. But right now, okay. I'm glad I have your permission. <laughs> Much appreciated. Um, <laughs> I will try to be very vague in this. Why don't you just I, kill a puppy at the same time? There, <laughs> there are there. The only animal that died in the making of Stranger Things season two was a cat. Yeah. Okay, what? let's just put it that way. Yes. Yes, yeah, true. A cat was lost. Big spoiler. Like that's the. Episode eight twist. No, I'm joking. <laughs> like wait, um, in real life, th- there is a cat that dies. Oh, yeah, and it is like cat. Not, like, yeah, oh, yeah. You have to bring this up on cat day too, but it's, it's cat, cat day. day. Yeah, <laughs> another internet. Yeah, as a, you know, in our theme of internet based things. This is the internet. The internet has created it. National Come Cat on. Day. Who yeah. came up with cat day? The internet, or you will. The internet or you. Check, check, check Twitter. Check Twitter. It's, it Are was you trending. To start National Cat Day with this podcast. <laughs> uh, I love cats, though, so I'm in. Yeah. I'm in, too. <laughs> they don't. They always creep me out. <laughs> so a cat dies. Cat dies. Spoiler. Um, let me see what else happens here. I, I Basically... For Stranger Things season two, it is far superior than the first season. And I say that because you finally get to 
you already know these characters and you know what happened to them and the trauma of the first season and they've grown up and a year has passed and now you're just continuing this journey. And so you get to know Will a lot more. Will's a huge character this wow. season. You, and- know, you, know what, you know what I will say? I watched, the, I, again, I only watched the first episode, but like I'm a filmmaker and a producer and all this stuff, right? Right. And, and the first episode of season two was so much better than any episode of Stranger Things season one, which I loved. And I was like, oh, they just pumped money into this. Every shot is <laughs> yeah. perfect. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, the quality. It's, it's, it's just like, oh, they, they are just putting so much investment behind Stranger Things. Because I literally watched that episode. I was like, oh, my God, that's one of the greatest episodes of television I've ever seen. Wow. I didn't think that, but... <laughs> <laughs> episode probably that's why it's probably because i started with the second episode and i'm just like oh they're going straight into this with 11 showing up and i'm like wow i did not expect that and then i'm like oh this is a second episode right 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 (laughs) but but you're right and what i what stood out to me was the editing I don't remember the editing of season one being like this, where all of the cuts were perfect and it just allowed the transitions between the different storylines to work so well. I I just applaud the editing with that. Netflix, they don't disclose like their budgets and stuff, right? They're pretty known for that, right? Right, right. I guarantee you that was a secret. They didn't know it was going to be such a hit, right? And Mm -hmm. everybody loved it. They probably put four times the money into season two than they did season one. Because I just looked at the quality of the production, and I was like, the amount of time they must have put into it, the quality of, like, even just, like, the CGI, like, the clouds in the sky, the animation, like, just everything is so much better. I was like, oh, my God, they're they're just, like, putting tons of dough into this. Right. Right. And, and then for the writers, it, it kind of... Um... Season two often for shows feels like they're expanding the universe to the point where you don't recognize it as the same show from the first season. But the the writers on Stranger Things were able to still expand the show and yet keep it self-contained in Hawkins. And so even though the episode one begins with that great Easter egg of introducing us to eight who right. is a sister of 11 and right. that gets revealed throughout this first season or the right. second season. Um, it's still, it's still all centers in Hawkins and it's about the upside down and these, this core group of friends that even expand because now you have Sadie and her very screwed up brother who he, <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, well, um, that actor played Jason in the Power Rangers movie that I saw in March. Really? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So all I kept thinking was that is a horrible wig throughout yeah. every time. You- <laughs> <laughs> like, so, so Bobby, explain that. How can they increase the budget and still have a horrible wig? Well, so I don't, I don't <laughs> know if it was a horrible wig or just terrible a terrible decisions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it a horrible wig or just a very bad like you know they just didn't spend any time on you know. On product for his hair. <laughs> for that Maybe that's his hair. Maybe he's just a, an ugly man. Yeah. <laughs> no, because without the wig, he's really cute. But then the wig, and then I'm all confused. Maybe he had a bald cap for the other movie. Maybe that's his real hair. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was just a very, yeah, it was, it was, it that mullet was just like, you know, it, it was like bad Richard Dean Anderson MacGyver. You know? maybe, maybe they like, you know, modeled it after that. <laughs> I love MacGyver. MacGyver's so classic. It is a classic. I, I will say too, I, one thing I really appreciate about Stranger Things is, um, just, just the like the period piece, you know. It's it really is a love letter to the '80s, and in, in, in a really glorious way. And I, I feel like it's a sort of an overlooked aspect of the series. It's a really strong hook. Hmm. It's it's a bit of '80s nostalgia as well. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you've seen this over and over again now, but I don't know. The '80s is not so long ago, but I feel like they really do a good job of having the small details of this 80s period piece that really make it work. Even in season one, you know, like, I love that all of this drama was happening with, you know, she's on, the, like, the rotary phone, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and I, I, think, th- I think they do that really fucking well. They do. They do. I mean, I was just thinking that when I was watching the series this uh, this, 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 this evening and over the weekend, uh, just the, the, the attention to detail that, you, that, that they really do... I mean, just even a small thing from seeing a Reagan Bush '84 sign in the yard, and yeah. the <laughs> it's just those those little, those little moments just to remind you uh, that the series is you know set in '80s, the love letter to the '80s, and not in a not in a like it's nostalgia, but not in, in, a, in a cheesy way. I mean, it's just like I, you know, I felt like I was back during that time, just sort of sitting there watching this. Oh yeah, and again, I've only watched episode one of season two. Like this is this has been established, but even the arcade, right? It's like uh, yeah. they're establishing the arcade, and that's exactly the way it was. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was I was alive in the eighties. You know what I mean? I yep. was a kid in the eighties. Same here. Yeah, and I was yeah. not. I was not. <laughs> I really wasn't. Were you born okay. In the 80s? I was born not. In the 80s? I was born oh. in the nineties. Oh, stop! Early nineties, at least. <laughs> 1990 exactly. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm still making like like a like a, a hurt face. <laughs> I, can, I can sense it. Could be worse. No, but I grew up with 80s movies because kids who grew up in the 90s always watched movies like The Goonies and all of oh, yeah. those classic oh, yeah. films. Oh, so you, you had to bring up The Goonies. Shoot. What? I said Sean. Yeah, it was like Sean Austin. Oh, yeah. Right. And he has a good arc. I love his arc. At first, I'm just like, oh, they stuck him in that position because Winona Ryder's character was my least favorite of season one. But they actually use him pretty well throughout the season, and he has a really cool arc. And it just made me think of Lord of the Rings, though, honestly. You know what's interesting, too? And I I don't know if they did this on purpose. (laughs) But like Winona Ryder was was like an an '80s icon. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Oh, they did it on purpose. Come on, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) It's so subtle though, but it's it's so brilliant, right? It's like it's like you've got this sort of love letter to the '80s, and then you've got this actress perfectly cast, right? She's old, but it's like you can't not think of that era when you've seen Winona Ryder. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so I was kind of taken aback when you thought it was the overlooked part of the show, when for me, I'm like, that's what I equate it to. I remember watching the season one preview, and I'm like, oh, they're going full in on this 80s nostalgia, and they pulled it off, but now it's 
I feel like season two, it's not just about the 80s nostalgia. It's about the story that they are telling and they're going all in on. And it's about this this dimension, these dimensions and these characters and who are growing up in adolescence. And I like what they did with the kids because yeah. the kids, you were introduced to them as a group package. And so you felt like they couldn't go off on their own stories. And yet in season two, all of them have their individual arc. And there's multiple episodes where they're not together. And Mm -hmm. that's perfect. And in fact, I think the most underutilized kid this season is Mike. And which makes sense in terms of his character, because him and Eleven had such a bond that now they're completely on opposite ends of the earth from one another and so he he's alone and he pretty much benches himself during the season due to that okay. and kind of distanced himself from Sadie, the newcomer and other people that show up. And so you're able to see how these kids are maturing and growing up, um, even with all of this craziness that is happening around them, which those are the movies that I grew up from the 80s. Well, okay, so let's 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 play a bit of a like a a writers room game here. Okay. We don't play games on the show, Bobby. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I just hang up. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Uh, well, okay, no, it's interesting. I mean, so let's think about it. We also saw season 1 and, you know, where season 2 obviously is what it is, but let's say we were tasked with, okay, guys, we've got this hit season 1. Stranger Things, we want to make a season 2. Where do we go? So this is these are the conversations that I would have with my writing room, right? It would mm-hmm. be like, okay, what what right. about right. season one? How can we create an experience? This is exactly what I would say. How can we create an experience that has the same feel? So we still have the same elements that people love for season two, but mm-hmm. it's a distinct season, right? right. It has to right. be different. It has to and and look, season two, in and of itself, has to have its own arc separate from season one, but it still has to have the continuity of season one, right? Right. How do you do that? So for me, I figure, okay, well, you can't, you're not just going to do the same thing that you did. I think some people do that and it's a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So this to me makes sense, right? It's like, okay, you need to decide which characters to focus on. Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> you go all in on eleven. That's the first thing. <laughs> Millie Bobby okay. Brown has just become an icon. So y- you yeah. have to yeah. put money there. Okay, next. I'll go next. Will be Hooper. Why Hooper? Because he didn't even stand out to me. Like I would go after the rest of the kids before I even touch the adults. And that sounds really weird. I'm just listening. <laughs> no, <guys>. no. <laughs> no well, but Will explain Hooper. I think he is the interested observer who basically you know the kids are you know they have their dynamic and they're and they are growing up you know as as you know young teenagers uh, trying to make sense of this whole bigger thing that just happened to them from season one um but he is that outside element that can sort of be sort of the the, the eyes of the audience that's a good point that's a really good point well, and he did have the um, the arc that did feel incomplete last season yeah. with um, his daughter. So that had to come to fruition. Yeah. God, I cannot talk. 
Um, but another character who you could put somebody behind actually would be Steve, Steve Harrington. He, he's a pretty good, like one of those, um, characters that you love to hate. And this season is, there's a good arc with him and I like what they did with his character. Because you, you need to introduce another bad guy. And just like you need to take the upside down and expl- expand that more, you need to also introduce new dynamics to the characters because you want to keep the character as, as grounded as possible. And so you want to see if you can take the bad guy from season one and turn him into have like a redemption arc. And right, then here's, maybe, here's, here's yeah. an idea that I would have. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of somewhat notorious for coming up with ideas that are maybe unreasonable, but pretty creative and they get people thinking different ways. For me, my, my access point for season two would be to do the opposite of season one, which sounds a little stupid and counterintuitive. But it kind of would make sense with the upside-down world and all, all the upside-down, all this stuff, right? It's like, what if instead of viewing, um, like, the upside-down through the lens of, like, the normal world, right? Like, the 80s world? Through the lens of Hawkins. What if you do the opposite? Where now you're, now it's like, now you're viewing the, up, now the, now the upside-down is the normal world, and then you view the other thing through that lens. Is that too weird? No, because no. I think that's what they're going to do in season three. Three, yep. <laughs> yeah. I really do. <laughs> yeah. I don't I can that. see. I can see it. Well, they need me in that writing room. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> I have, yeah. Um, I think that people don't take enough risks with their content, and I think it's a big mistake because it's like our audience is really intelligent, like, People know stuff. Like, you have to, like, really, like, go out of your way to, like, surprise people these days. So so then, Bobby, if people are fear, have that fear to do something crazy with their content, do you think it's, do you think it's because of the risk or is it more about timing of the story? Because if the creators have an idea, long-term idea of how this story is going to um, play out over the course of multiple seasons, so they're not just writing for the first season, then do you think it's reasonable to think that maybe they just want to flesh it out more before they get to that so it feels more natural in the evolution? Okay, so I started as a playwright. I've been a playwright for 20 years. Writing film and television has been maybe the last three to five years, so it's been a transition, right? Right. I still do both, right? I'm still acting in this play and I do all this stuff. But they're very different worlds, right? And so one thing that I learned very quickly about film and television, especially as opposed to theater where it's not like this, the in, in theater, the motivation for why something is done is usually creative, right? Like someone has a really mm-hmm. create like whatever their idea is, sometimes it's very obtuse, sometimes it's brilliant, and but they just... Whatever it is, the execution is based on that idea, and how can we how can we get this idea across to an audience, right? Mm-hmm. In film and tele- television, in my opinion, it's almost always economic. Mm-hmm. Okay. The motivation for almost everyone, except sometimes you get really weird art films or something, but for the most part, it's about money. It's about raising a bigger budget. It's about getting more eyeballs, getting more people to see it. 
creating more of a better, you know, an experience for the consumer. Like, I think in theater, you think of, of people as audience members, and I think in TV, you think of them as consumers. Mm. Oh. So I, think, I like that analogy. Yeah. I think that, and I think it's true. As you said, in my experience, that's what I've seen. And I, I think um, people, I think it's a pretty simple um, concept to grasp. I think people like, oh, that was a hit, sort of surprisingly. We should kind of like do that again, but like... Um, maybe like a little bit different, but it has to be pretty similar to what it was in season one, at least in terms of formula, because yeah. we want that audience back. Right, right. And we're, Economic. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know we're getting back to our, you know, our bread and butter shows or, or the CW Arrowverse, and uh, that's definitely what's happening with uh, The Flash, which is probably is the breakout show of, you know, even though Arrow started the whole thing. Um, you know, the Flash. Really, the last two seasons went down a darker route, which you know didn't take any. You know, I think they're trying to take risks, but I think it alienated a lot of their viewers because this season they have like gone completely back to the formula from season one. Right. So you, and I believe that we live in an era where the you know, for lack of a better term, let's just call them the television generation. Because what is TV now? What's the difference? Web TV. I mean, Everyone's watching stuff on their phones. I mean, who knows, right? Right. But let's say the television generation. Because of all of the amazing... We're in the renaissance, okay, for film and television. There's never been the volume and quality of content that we have right now. Mm-hmm. So with that, it, it makes... You have to be way better to get attention, right? Like you're sh- Like a show that would have been really good in 1995... Um, mm-hmm. you know, it would no longer hold up, right? Like if something like Seinfeld or Friends came out today, I think nobody would watch it because there's like ten better shows on Netflix. True. Um, so because the quality is so high, I believe that the audience is way more sophisticated than people give um, us credit for, and we crave a more complex experience. But network executives are so used to the old model, mm-hmm. they're not growing with the complexity of the audience. So as an actor, there's a term that I, you know, I, you know, I've used a, a long time, and I learned it when I was just training, when I probably as a teenager. But you always play to the top of an audience's intelligence as an actor. Okay, so if you're stupid, um, your character is stupid. Like that's a judgment. But if your character happens to be stupid. You don't play like, oh, I'm so stupid, because you come across as a caricature, right? Mm-hmm. But if you actually are stupid, well, you're still playing to the top of your character's intelligence. So you're just like, oh, what do you mean? I can't put the, I can't put the fork in the toaster? But you play it from a more genuine place, right? You're not like, oh, I can't put the fork in, in the toaster. <laughs> But you see the difference, right? It's like when you play the top of the character's intelligence, no one's insulted. And then it can be funny because it's like, oh, like they're actually, that's the, that's the extent of their intelligence, right? Right. That is not done often enough, I think, in film and television where it's like you're pandering to the fucking audience and it's like, no, 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 no. Your audience is really, really, really smart because especially nowadays, anybody with like a Netflix membership is watching awesome stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. So you can take those risks, but but for whatever reason, I feel like people don't. Hmm. 
just a theory. No, it it reminds me of better articulated conversations that me and Will and some of my other friends have had in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah give us better shit, man. It's like we like we've just yeah. seen ten awesome shows. Like, like you guys are so ahead that you even know all of the form. It's just like you can know right away. First episode of season four. Oh my god, you're going back to the old formula from season one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this is the audience gets it. They get it, and it's like you can't do shit like that anymore. No, you can't. You can't, you can't write the, for the procedurals. Yeah. No. The, the marketplace is just too. Yeah. This is too many well, good. Too much good content this is out what there. What kills me about Canada is that they're still commissioning procedurals, and it's like we're making like this stuff that sold in the '90s, and I'm like, guys, like, are you watching Netflix? Like, this stuff is crazy. You got to make crazy stuff. That's why, like, in Canada, the digital world, we're thriving, man, because we're just – because the gatekeepers in Canada are very conservative, but mm-hmm. in the digital world, the gatekeepers are gone. Now, the gatekeepers are starting to come back because now there's real money being poured into the digital sphere, but the way I've been able to make a name is I just do whatever the hell I want. I mean, IRL, for a small amount of money, is pretty bold. I mean, we do, like – I think we have, like, six different genres – like, even anthology series like Black Mirror, which obviously has inspired us a little bit, they don't go as far in the genre as we do. I mean, we have a film noir episode. We have a dance episode. Mm-hmm. We have horror. We have thriller. We have comedy. We have, like, And I think that it, it does speak to that sophisticated experience that people crave. It's like, oh, like this is actually a different way to do things. Yeah, yeah, it, it, and I, I, I messaged Sarah last night. I was watching a couple of the episodes. I was like, hey, you know, this is some of these. Uh, they really, really did grab me, and really, really, you know, were wanted me like wanted more, and uh, and because it was very original content, and you know, even though it was just a very short, you know, eight five minute or so uh, video, it was, uh, it, it, you know. It, it was original, it was unique, and I, I enjoyed it. I mean, are you going to be as interested in me as a creator if I write ten episodes about two guys smoking weed in their apartment? <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like a lot I've of seen web- that before. Yeah. Well, this is it, right? And a lot of the web, and I don't want to hate on other creators because some of the stuff is really cool out there, but a lot of it is quite derivative. It's people who are just—they're just—they just really want attention. It's a vehicle for themselves. It's very, very basic, basic storytelling, and it lacks the complexity. And just because you're doing something in a shorter amount of time doesn't mean you can't be complex about it. I had some of the best writers in Canada in my writing room, right? It just happened to be shorter content. But we're still, like, we're still getting, like, international audiences because it has legs. Because I think that if you put real quality and effort and complexity underlying bolded um you put that complexity in your show of whatever length the audience is in. Yeah, yeah, and and using it as using social media as a as a as a backdrop, which is this whole world, you know, that we're in. Um, it, you know, definitely, um, you know, creates that. You know, it, it it gives the audience member an opportunity. You know, to you know, you can reflect either upon yourself or, or someone you know who is like that. Right. This is the future. I mean, if people 
are smart about it, this is the future. We're going to have really, really complex, interesting narratives coming out, like just completely different ways to tell stories. Um, I, I even think just the formulaic season one, season two, season three, like I get it. You have to package and distribute. I'm not saying you abolish that, but I think you have to completely change the audience's perception from show to show, maybe episode to episode, definitely season to season. Right? So I, I get that you need to curate a sort of consistent experience so you can sell it, but I think that you can get a lot of mileage that uh, out of really surprising your audience. You know what I mean? Like if you never know what's going to happen, but, you, but you're invested, right? Like the characters are teased out, the arcs are there, but the execution is very, very different. You're going to have people on the edge of their seats. Because if you're already, you're already too far ahead, if, like, if you can already predict where things are going, <laughs> boring. Sarah, remember that? No. <laughs> no, we were just talking about how while watching Stranger Things, we like to read the episode um, descriptions, synopsis, which basically tells you where things are going. And so you don't have to predict, but you kind of know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I purposely don't. I hate that they do that. I hate that they do that. And I, but I get that there's, there's people obviously who demand it. Well, it's not that I demand it. It's just that my curiosity always gets the best of me because I'm just sitting here and there's a boring scene happening. And I'm like, oh, looky here. I can figure out how to do this. Yep. <laughs> it's just I that hate, I hate yep. No, I, I hate or, that they I hate that they do. That's the thing I hate the most about Netflix is those descriptions. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like me and my vendetta against trailers because trailers are getting so out of control these days. You oh, pretty yeah. much have seen the whole movie. And that's goes back to your point about how features are dying is because they show you it in a three minute trailer. You know, what I hate, you know what I hate too? I don't know how you get around this technologically. I'm sure you could find a way. I hate that. I know how long an episode is. And mm. I know that sounds mm. crazy, right? Because they no. want to plan their day and they want to, how about if you had a fucking show and you don't know, because they don't, there's no timer, right? You just watch and it's over when it's fucking over. You could have some episodes that are three minutes. You could have some episodes that are 90 minutes. You have some episodes that are 23 minutes. Part of the reason this stuff is so formulaic is it's like it's cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if you change the amount of time and the length that that episode is, and even showing the, the audience for how long it is, you completely change the experience for that person. Right? Yeah. So this well, is the, the way I think. Yeah. Right? It's very contrarian. But I think that that is the future of television. Makes sense but to me. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. You're going to watch a show. You don't know how many episodes there are. You don't know how long they are. Obviously, you need good writing and you need good characters and all this stuff. Like These, these things will never change. But if you just change the conventions of the media, which I think you could do very easily in Netflix. I'm sure there's a simple technological algorithm. Mm -hmm. It yeah. just clicks to the next thing when it's done, right? Right. Yeah. You just yeah. get rid of the counter. You'll never know when's when's it gonna. Like if you remember a few, I think. It was well, especially in the yeah, especially in the binging world, because I mean, that's how especially like these event shows that when they drop, um, you know, people are just you know consuming it in in one big in one chunk in many cases, and you know. 
to your point, if it's just, you know, rolling, rolling through, you know, you don't need that counter. Right. And, but that only works until after they've binged and quote unquote caught up and then they're in real time. And you always hear them say the same thing. Well, I really wish I was binge watching this because the consumption was so much better because it goes to Bobby's point about not knowing how long the episodes are and having a, like having it just flow from episode to episode. Yeah. But even binging, even binging, like what if it was like they set it up in a way that's like, look, you know, season one in total is like five hours long, but you don't know how they're divided up. Do you know what I mean? I, it's like, I think no, they're, I, not, I, they're not, I, I are see, not sophisticated I, with the way they're giving their content to an audience that is increasing in terms of sophistication. I hear it. I just, I, I mean, I, um, and I agree with it because I think about shows that I've been watching and how I have a very different experience when I don't know, like I'm not paying attention to the counter and I'm just fully engaged in the story. And the next thing I know it's over and I'm like, whoa, that went by really quickly. And then there's a whole nother experience when I'm constantly paying attention to the counter or thinking, well, man, this episode should be over now and it just drags on. So I can see that working for sure and people buying into it. And I like the idea that it's it's about more about changing the mechanics of a show and putting a spin on that than the actual story itself. Look, one thing The Walking Dead, which I love, The Walking Dead did very well in the first three seasons is that someone you think is a lead all of a sudden would die. And you're like, what? But they're one of the stars of the show. And then around, I think it was about season four, they kind of kept this nucleus, and you just knew that they were just never going to die. Yeah, so I stopped and, watching. And well, this is it, right? And so here's the thing, right? Is I Again, it's the element of surprise. I believe in the series world, in the television world these days, predictability equals death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, the way that I approach the stuff that I make is how do I stay one step ahead of what the audience can predict? How can I do something completely different that they will never expect that they're like, holy shit, like I thought I saw everything and now I don't know what's going on. That is exactly when you get people engaged. Reminds me of Mr. Robot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you know what line just went through my mind, Will, when he said that? Well, uh, it's a Tyrell quote. It's a Tyrell quote. Um, you can't see what's in front of you. It's about what's above you. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually an Elliot quote to Tyrell, but yeah, it's the same. So. Now, I can't believe you haven't watched Mr. Robot, Bobby. Like, yeah. that show I've, heard, I've heard many <laughs> things over and over again. So I actually had unplugged from Netflix and all television for about six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just recently started again because I was because I was just like, you know, I'm making a lot of stuff and I, you know, it's so easy to get sucked into the trap of watching other people's things. And I'm like, oh, my God, like there's so much to watch. And it's like, what about my stuff? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I've heard definitely Mr. Robot. I've heard over and over again is very, very good. Yeah. It is, yeah, it is. And it's and it's easy. I was a, I, I didn't watch it first when it, on the first run. 
I came to the series late, but uh, it's easy to catch up. I mean, it's very, you know, digestible as far as just being able to knock it out in a quick time. And, um, yeah, it's it, it's definitely it definitely is up to the to to his uh, to his billing. Right. I'm sold. I'm in. I'll watch it. <laughs> it is a bit predictable in the first season, though. It is, but it, I, I still find the first season to be nearly perfect. Second season has pacing issues that bother me to no end, and in the third season, finally Sam Esmail is filling in the plot points that was missing, and I kept predicting, like, oh, every season two episode I would have the same prediction. They're going to tell us what happened to Tyrell. They're going to tell us what happened to Tyrell. Finally, it took us until season three, episode three, for us to get that backstory. And you know where he was, Will? He was, was with a, Irving. Irving, yes. <laughs> in, the, in, in, in the boonies. My favorite new character. This yes. guy is awesome. And I told you he was a con artist. And what did we see in this episode? He has all of those mugs. Yes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he is just like, I'm going to use this mug today because I'm going to manipulate this character. That's genius. I total, love that. Yes. Total, total genius. And as this is like the, the scenes with Tyrell and Irving could like, and we, we talked about this offline is that they, um, they could easily spin off into a, a, a series uh, with this, these two characters. Uh, just a buddy the, cop show. A buddy cop show, and, and but also yeah. just the, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, I just you know, I'm just thinking back to the series as far as like, you know, I don't know if I don't know if Irving was just you know telling Tyrell a bunch of bullshit about you know family and his experiences with you know why he pulled back, um, but whenever he you know almost lost you know. It wasn't around for his kids, and you know Tyrell was expecting was expecting their child with um, as as well, Joanna. but Joanna. Um, but um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it was just eyeballs on the screen for like you know for that hour of the episode, and it was just one of those things where I was just like, it, if if they had you know if they sometimes when they fill in the blank kind of stories, it's it, it's like. Uh, why did you go there? It would be better off just leaving those gaps just up to the audience's imagination. But and, and this one, it actually worked. I, I think it was required. Yeah. There was so much mystery around what happened to Tyrell, and more importantly, what happened to in season one, episode nine, with the five nine hack, mm-hmm. because that's where the Tyrell mystery really started, and they went straight back to that scene and expanded it, and I love that. And I also, I like the idea that Irving is reminding you more and more of White Rose and the fact that you can't trust anything he says because you have no idea if it's manipulation or not. And so he can be feeding lines, but depending on who he's talking to and the situation and what he needs that end result to do, um, you don't know if it's true or not, especially if it has to do with him as a person because he's such a con artist. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's so true. And, and it makes sense why Irving is the fixer for the dark army um, in, in the series. 
Yeah, who also fixed the United States presidential election. Yes. <laughs> White Rose was behind Rose. it all. Yes, the puff, Damn yes. it, White Rose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then last but not least, the final spoiler of the episode was the FBI mole. Yes. That was actually, I, that was getting to our themes of unpredictable uh, storytelling. That one definitely got me. I was not expecting that particular agent to be, uh, to Santiago. Be the mole. Santiago, yeah, to be the mole. Um, you know, but it just, again, shows the tentacles of, of white roses everywhere. And getting back to our discussion about whether or not this is a, you know, the, the simulation theory or, you know, some of the far fetched things that, um, have been out there as far as Mr. Robot, whether or not this show involves time travel, which Sam Smell has basically said no, but, yeah. um, you know, an alternate universe or whatever. Again, I don't think it is. I think, I mean, I think the whole construct of Mr. Robot is that this is happening real world and contextually with our time using all the various little points like the Trump election and using Obama in season, you know, season two and season one as far as the five nine hack and explaining what's been going on. I, you know, I think what White Rose, it, I think all this shows is just how White Rose is basically is the, the, uh, the lead manipulator and, and all of this, you know, it, whether it's the world's economy or, uh, obviously elections and, and, and other things. So how did White Rose jam the gun? Because Tyrell should technically be dead. Right? Right. Um, and remember, White Rose yeah. does not believe in coincidence. That's right. Um, that's one of those great, great, one of those great mysteries. Of, I think that will, you know, they got to think they have to leave it, leave us something. Um, and let's see if I recall the, the, the series of events, um, that gun was provided to Elliot who sold, who hit it in the, in the popcorn machine, correct? Darlene, Darlene had the gun in the popcorn right. machine. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm talking. Elliot took it, took but it. remember that it was actually Irving who handed the gun to Tyrell. Right. And that is the same gun that shot Elliot in the season two finale. Right, right. So simulation theory, though, to go back to that yeah. idea that we were talking about last week, um, there are theories out there now that if, if they are in a simulation, then there's another timeline or another world where Elliot, where Tyrell is dead. And, and so that may be a thing in the future. I don't really know. No, not really. I don't think so. I, I yeah. I, I think I think the bigger point here with with White Rose is that they are the um, that he you know that she is the uh, lead manipulator and um, uh, of events that there's no alternate theories or alternate worlds going on here. It's just the audience is expected to think that this is you know happening in in universe not in some alternate universe. Oh, well. 
I, I like, I appreciate how you're in denial about this and I'm <laughs> going to look so forward into it coming true in the future without time travel. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right, guys. I think that's it for net tonight. Um, Bobby, why don't you give a shout out to the listeners and tell them where they can find you? Uh, so the easiest way to reach me is probably on Twitter. I'm at, at Bobman. Um, and for IRL on Twitter, we're at, at IRL the series. Yeah. Yeah. Go check it out. Watch now. Please. Will, yes. where can people send you all of their Mr. Robot time travel theories? Yes, send all your time travel theories where I'm completely, where I'm completely wrong. Try to convince <laughs> me otherwise. Uh, you can find me at Will M. Polk. That's W-I-L-L-M-P-O-L-K. And you can find me at SJ Belmont, S-J-B-E-L-M-O-N-T. Please follow our crew on Twitter at Cena Nerd. Friend us on Facebook. But most importantly, rate, subscribe, and comment on both iTunes and SoundCloud and tune in. And then you can also find us on the CastBox Android app. Good night, geek out. You're welcome. <laughs>